Abby there. Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, August the 2nd, 2020. And I'm your host, Brooke Hines. And I'm feeling really under the weather. But that's okay, because we have a lot of show that doesn't involve me <laughs> tonight. We have some that does. Um, we have... Uh, an interview with Joy Marie Mann and Pat Cote, also known as Silly Rabbit. Uh, they just published a book called The Ask Queen Chronicles, and I'll be sharing that with you tonight. Also, Rick Spizak sat down for a chat with good old Dennis Campbell, and we're going to play some of that. We also have a special interview that Rick has done with uh, uh someone from the arts community that he used to work with, um, an arts co-op, I believe. I don't have any notes. That's how under the weather I am today. And then lastly, we have Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. So let's hear from one of our sponsors really quick, and I'll come right back. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of aromacology, indigenous scents representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. Daughtersofisis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's Daughtersofisis.com And so I noticed this piece of news today, um, 671 new cases of COVID-19 in Australia and, or in Melbourne, Australia, and they've declared a state of disaster. And uh, I can't help but notice that Florida has 10,000 uh, new cases <clears throat> every day of the month, and it's just the state of Florida. It's uh, uh, just gobsmacking. The, the death toll in Australia is, is like down in the single digits. And of course, you know, we're getting up around 200 people a day. So <clears throat> it, is, it is with that <laughs> that your uh, hostess this evening is a uh, little out of sorts, wondering what this fever is all about. Um, but let's get right to it. I'm going to do the interview with uh, Patrick Coat and Joy Marie Mann first, and we'll come back in about 20 minutes and check in with Rick Spizak and Dennis Campbell. So um, reading this, there were places – and no lie, there were places in this where I was laughing out loud. And then, you know, I slept on it, and I got up this morning, and I did a little bit of, of Googling, and I was shocked to find out that a lot of the stuff in here is straight from these people's mouths. So, uh, yeah. us up and give us a give us a sense of what what we're reading here. And how, and then Joy, come in and tell us a little bit of how you got this material together. Yeah, so we had the, the concept, um, we wanted to see how many, how many 
quote-unquote shit libs we could get in one book, more or less. Uh, so we came up the, with the idea of a resistance forum, um, you know, basically like the college tours you see where a lot of pundits and media personalities get together and discuss politics. Uh, so the book is called The Yas Queen Chronicles, Coverage of the First Annual Resistance Forum. And, um, you know, the idea is they get together, they talk about the media, Bernie bros, Karens, uh, gaslighting, feminism, stuff like that. And the um, the moderators are uh, MSNBC personalities for the most part. We've got Joanne Greed, uh, Soledad O'Lion, and Chris Badviews. And then the uh, panelists are Nancy Pagosi, Alyssa Shalano, Nira Tantrum, Jennifer Poobin, Tom Perez, uh, James Scarville, and um, had to throw in one positive person. So we have Nina Berner in there. And Joy, how does how does a lot of the stuff, and I won't ruin it for people, but a lot of the stuff in here is is ripped. From headlines. I mean, uh, it's satire and it's super funny, but then I realized, oh my gosh, like Alyssa Milano actually said these things that you've uh, got in this uh, one passage. There's a Soledad Orion says, uh, uh, asks the panel if they would personally like to clarify or apologize for anything racially insensitive. And what follows are it's like this is true stuff. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, thankfully, I don't know what it is, but in 2015, I learned that I have a mind like a steel trap, and I will remember every single thing politically I read. It's so crazy. So I'll just like be thinking, and I'll be like, "Ooh, I remember so and so," and then I'll look it up and get the quote. But yeah, I mean, a lot people have to remember if they get offended when they read our book, they need to Google it because chances are it is literally quotes. Um, we may not put the quotations because we're, you know, doing it in in a forum respect, but a lot of this stuff. I mean, we're not just pulling this stuff out of thin air. These characters, i.e., real people, have said these things and. It sounds so outlandish, like, oh, that sounds like something a Republican would say. Why, yes, it does, but they said it. Um, so it's really incredible. Um, my husband is the one who's editing, and he doesn't know who Neera Tantrum is and these people. Like, he's not a Twitter person. So, you know, I'm having to kind of explain it to him and stuff, which is awesome because he can tell us as someone who's not Twitter, you know, Twitterverse person, if it's still funny. And he's still laughing out loud continuously, which is a really good sign. But um, he'll say, I don't know if you should say this. That's, that's wild. And I'll say, that's a quote. Like, yes, I'm going to say that. That is a quote, <laughs> you know, and he's just like, no way, like, not going to believe um, that it, that these, you know, panelists have actually said these things. Well, and when I, on first reading, I had that same uh, reaction. I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, uh, 
this is so wild. This is this is a, the, the the shitlibs are going to lose their minds and and uh, come after you guys. And then, you know, like I said, I realized that this was actually things that they said, and it just blew my mind. I shared it with my husband too, and he had the same reaction. So I was wondering. Um, this is something that is uh, ripped from the headlines right now is a uh, uh, cancel culture. You know, do you, do you have, have you had any discussions or any thought about how you're going to uh, um, uh, talk about these being the true statements? Like, do you expect people to push back on it and then be able to say, aha, but it's true. It's exactly what they said. Uh, you know, I think for the most part, um, centrist Twitter will just ignore that this book exists. So we won't be called out for that, I, I don't think. But I look forward to it if we are. Um, you know, <laughs> they we did, should be pissed when they read it. <laughs> they should be. Um, you know, we did source everything. So, you know, aside from... Um, you know, giving playing with the characters and how they speak and the the phrases they say. You know, everything they talk about is is factual. I mean, that was that was the point. This wasn't written just to be, you know, ha ha. The centrists are terrible people, and the media's uh, full of it. We wanted to really show you why they're full of it and and how disingenuous they are. So. You know, it's, we start with the facts, and then we built the the comedy around that. But as far as cancel culture goes, I mean, you know, I think it goes too far sometimes. Um, I I think most people are are hiding behind cancel culture to excuse their bad behavior, though. Tell me a little bit about, um, you know, uh, what was it that Winnie Bruce said that satire is. Uh, tragedy plus time, or uh, Carol Burnett said that comedy is is tragedy plus time. But I think Lenny Bruce actually said said first that it was satire. Um, do you do you feel like now, like like when you had the idea to have this, was it like, oh, we've got to do this like right now because the moment is right, the the the, the time has passed, and uh, these things are we can actually start looking at these things that people have been saying and see them for what they are it really came to me one day when I mean Pat and I have, have you know we've we've been acquaintances he's been on my show like a bunch of times but when the whole Tara Reid thing started I I noticed you know all these women just the women in particular, just saying the most disgusting, awful things and defending Biden and praising Biden and things like that. And then, you know, my hero dropped out of the presidential race and I was just so damn depressed. I couldn't stand it. And I needed an outlet. I was just, I I was just not in a good place. And you know, I, I messaged Pat and I said, hey, I know you're working on a second book, but I've got some ideas and I want to just, you know, maybe in the future we could write a book together. 
And I was kind of thinking he would be like, oh, okay, yeah, like, and then forget about it. But he's like, okay, let's start this weekend. And I was just kind of blown away because I knew he was already working on another book. Um, So I didn't anticipate him being down, like, right away. Um, And Pat and I have never met. Um, He's in California. I'm in Pennsylvania. So I didn't know if he'd even want to do a book with someone he doesn't know. (laughs) Pat, tell us a little bit about how that process goes. So uh, Joy's in Pennsylvania and you're in California. How do you get the material together and decide on how it's going to flow? Right. Well, uh, we basically created a – uh, we wrote it all on a Google Doc that we shared. So um, we we broke down the, the concepts we wanted to hit, and that essentially broke down into the different chapters in the book, which are just phases in the forum um, where they're speaking. Um, and then we just structured it with the, the points you wanted to hit on that topic, and then we both just would write um, some of the dialogue back and forth and look at it, and then – um, when we finish the chapter, we we uh, edit it over the phone while we're both in the Google Doc together and looking at it. And uh, it, it surprisingly worked. I mean, I, I couldn't see it being any different if we were actually together, really. No, no, I agree. And, you know, something that I, uh, you know, was was definitely difficult for me and I'm sure for Pat especially in the beginning is I am legally blind I have no sight in my left eye and I have about 50% sight in my right eye so it's not like I'm just typing everything myself we had to kind of come up with something where when we do some of our writing together over the phone he does the typing and we both discuss what we wanted to say. Um, So he, you know, especially the, you know, as of late, he's been doing the physically typing. Um, When I do typing, sometimes it's like an an audio app and sometimes it's um, uh, like, I just make the, you know, I make accommodations on, on my computer. Um, But, you know, it, it definitely, it took some to get used to, and um, it's really shown me that, uh, you know, last year when I lost my sight and I didn't think I could write again, it's shown me that, like, I can. Um, so it's been a, a pretty incredible experience for me and, and healing in that regard. I I am I am floored at how you've got these voices down. Some of these voices are just spot on. Chris Matthews's voice is spot on. You've got Nina um, Nina's voice down pat, uh, and uh, I can hear uh, uh, Jennifer Rubin or Poobin and Soledad Orion or O'Brien. I can actually hear their voices off of the page. Uh, is that anything awesome. like did that come naturally you know I mean for me I, I have CNN and MSNBC on 
almost all day while I'm working at my house. So, uh, you know, as much as they're terrible sources of news, I always think it's, it's the best source if you're following other sources as well to know, you know, what kind of propaganda that the media is putting out, what kind of spin they're using. And to me, the media is our biggest enemy. So, you know, that's why I watch them, not because I like the shows. So I hear their voices in my nightmares. Also something uh, a little different than that, but something we had to kind of become very conscientious of is that Pat and I don't get offended by anything, like literally Mm -hmm. anything. So we have to kind of like be very aware of, is this too far? I don't know. But that's where my husband editing comes in. Yeah, it always helps to have that uh, that third person, you know, someone else who isn't in your own uh, kind of mind palace with, with these things uh, in terms yeah. of trying to figure out if something's offensive or not. Right. Um, and if anything in the book offends you, Joy wrote it, for the record. <laughs> She's really my out for any, any sexism in particular. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you know, it's uh, being offended. So, so you know, this is the Solowinsky's rules for radicals have been ruined by conservatives. But, but the thing that he said, the fifth rule was was ridicule. That, that ridicule is a is a potent weapon, uh, and it forces concessions from your enemies. Uh, in the case of the inconvenient douche about Peter Dow. He actually made that journey from uh, being a shitlib to remarkably being on point. Uh, I didn't believe at first that, that it was he was being um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for earnest. I didn't believe he was being earnest yeah. about it. It's kind of amazing. I mean, the guy. It, I was one of the last few holdouts to believe him too, but. Um... He really did turn the corner. He's a he's a hard lefty now. Now I don't know that that means we should ever truly redeem a guy like that that did paid propaganda. Um, but he's helping our cause, so you know I give him credit for that. The the thing that made me realize like holy shit was he was he was taking it hard from these Hillary shows. I mean they were just threatening him, yelling at him, bullying. Him. And he didn't back down. He didn't try to rationalize what he said and said, well, yeah, you're right, but maybe we should try. He stood firm. And the more he did that and the more he got bullied to change back to how he was, that's when I was like, okay, he's definitely learning. And um, he followed Nate's liver and myself. So it's like, it's like he... He gets that um, that humor now. I think part of it is is due to uh, effective ridicule, uh, and and when you're when you're being a paid poster for the uh, Brock people, the David Brock people, then you know you've you've earned it. You've earned the mockery. How, what do you see coming beyond Bernie? Where what's next for? For the movement, what should what should we keep our eyes on, and uh, how can we keep helping to push things left? 
it really is not me us and i think burners as a whole are focusing on um the actual policies more than bernie um the fact of the matter is we've got a, a dumpster fire running against a dumpster fire um we have had no concessions um we have uh, many of us just have no hope. I mean, uh, electorally, um, politically, there's, you know, hope as far as all of the the marches in the street and things like that. Um, it's been very beautiful to to watch so many people come together. Um, but you know, I if Biden wins, and I do mean if, um, I think. Once January comes, a lot of people are going to have a rude awakening because they're going to want to go so-called back to normal, back to brunch, and a lot of crap is not going to change. Um, and it's going to leave us back where it was if Hillary would have won. Um, and I, honestly, at the you know the the power Bernie had with our movement and. You know, people like myself moving to Iowa for five weeks to volunteer, um, just picking up everything. You know, I wasn't the only one. He he inspired millions. Um, and I feel like if he can't change things, I really don't help. I, I don't have much hope anyone can. Um, so it really is up to us. Um, but we're this is not the toughest fight the toughest fight will be january um if biden wins yeah i mean i want to to piggyback on what joy's saying i think you know in a way bernie being at least temporary temporarily you know not the leader of the movement um it's kind of a good thing if you if you look at it this way you know the the people in the streets are they're not attached to Bernie now. Like you can't say these are burners and this is about electoral politics right now. You know, it's, I think what's going to happen is, is you're going to have leaders rise up on the left that aren't necessarily even in politics. You know, people like, I mean, Nina, of course, uh, Nina, Bree, like, um, uh, I think Philip Agnew is going to be one of the big leaders on the left. Um, you know, so the, the detachment of, of the movement from Bernie, in a way, can be seen as a good thing. Um, obviously, not as good as him being president. And hopefully, we get him with his his uh, balls back once the election's over. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. I want to make sure that everybody knows how they can, number one, get the book, and number two, find you guys online. So what are the best ways to find you and find the book. So our website to get our book is www.savageandpat.com. Um, and as far as I have over 300 past shows, um, if you go to uh, YouTube, Real Progress in Action, um, and then I have my new current shows, um, on Uphill Media, um, and I did recently interview Michael Brooks, if you guys want to check that out. On Twitter, I'm uh, Pat the Burner, and I run the uh, Nate's Liver parody account, um, which is at, at S-I-L-E rabbit, silly rabbit.
All right, and we're back. Um, more craziness here in Florida while we were um, listening to uh, Joy Marie Mann and Pat Cote. Uh, I think our dryer caught on fire. <laughs> this is not one thing, it's another. We're also having a hurricane um, somewhere around here. Uh, okay, let's do. Let's come back with Dennis Campbell. This is part one of Rick Spizak's chat with Dennis Campbell. Now, this is the full part one. Here you go. Number one, I, I got to ask you a question. Uh, I'm seeing what I can only characterize as really intelligent news coming out of the UK especially in this the era of COVID, that over 250 small towns and villages are getting uh, upgrades across all of rural UK. They're getting high-speed internet. The BT uh, subsidiary outreach has unveiled plans to guarantee to build full fiber broadband to 3.2 million premises in these hard-to-reach regions over the next couple of years. What are you guys doing making sense? I don't understand. But, you know, keep in mind there's, there's, there's two issues here. There is the announcement, yeah, well. which is the opportunity for every member of parliament in the area to get their photograph taken. And then there's the Always activity. Important. I've been here for 17 years in country, but I think this would probably be the sixth or seventh time that they've announced they're going to be bringing high-speed broadband to rural areas. Now, to their credit, in more developed villages, and by more developed, I mean ours has, uh, you know, maybe 900 houses in it. Uh, you know, there's a box, and it does give us high speed at about 45 uh, megabits uh, per second, which is more than enough to download, and upload speeds around about six or seven, which means you know, it used to take 20 minutes to upload a 10-minute video. Now it takes two. So there is progress being made. But if you're on a farm or if you're in a rural area and you're not anywhere near, the biggest issue has always been, do you run the cable or how do you figure out where to put a mast? And they've been terrible at that. And I think that, that you know, yes, uh, you know, somebody – in the Tory government has said, oh, this will get us some very nice press. And it did for about 10 minutes. But it's totally ignoring the fact that, you know, Brexit is going terribly. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a, a re-spike in some of our um, COVID cases. Uh, you know, we've had to put in quarantines between here and Spain and, and other things. So, you know, it, it's very much like what Donald Trump does when he doesn't want you to look at what he's doing. Oh, look over there. We're going to put in broadband. <laughs> and that's kind of the way the Tories have done it forever. Well, that's last, at least the last decade that they've been in control. Well, I, I, I will get to the places that our current leader takes us in a minute. <laughs> I, do, I do want to talk about a few things. Otherwise, um, obviously, uh, COVID is being dealt with multiple different ways in, in different jurisdictions, as, as makes sense. It seems to me that tourism has, has taken the forefront when one would think that trade issues would be far more paramount 
and far more impacted. Maybe that's just because they don't want to talk about that part because that's too serious. Well, yeah, I literally just saw an article a few minutes ago saying that, um, you know, despite all of the differences and the acrimony in the discussion, differences have indeed narrowed in trade negotiations for Brexit and starting to look like a deal could be done and we don't end up with a hard Brexit. You know, trade is a big issue. Uh, and no matter what they decide, you know, they've been, they've been uh, touting our new relationship and trade deals once we leave with Liechtenstein, Switzerland, uh, you know, these tiny countries when we're leaving, you know, a 500 million person trading block known as the European Economic Union. I believe we even have a deal now with New Zealand and Australia, you know, but we don't have any deal with the European Union or the United States, which are the two most important trading blocks for the goods and services, the few of them that are made here. And, uh, you know, they've gone absolutely crazy on tariffs. I ordered a uh, blue wave, democratic wave T-shirt from the good folks at Political Wire, Tegan Goddard's uh, operation, who, you know, I highly respect. That T-shirt had a, a retail price of 31 U.S. dollars. And uh, adding shipping on top of that was another 17 U.S. dollars. And then adding US cust uh, U.K. customs duties on top of that was another $17 on top of that. Oh, my so goodness. So my $31 T-shirt ended up costing almost $65. And, you know, that's 40 pounds when all said and done. And that's just like, you know, they're not doing anything to help themselves. They're not doing anything to... Um, you know, make they're, they're basically anti-immigration, anti-trade, anti-tariff. I mean, the, the tariffs are such now that they want to be able to get as much money as they can out of the you know, out of whomever decides they want to come and do business here, and it's just it's insanity. Let me uh, let me go ahead and take a moment yeah. to to introduce, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I have the great good fortune to bring my. Uh, one of my favorite commentators, uh, the author, talented political analyst, and all-round uh, raconteur. Yeah, there's what I was looking for, raconteur. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Mr. Dennis Campbell of uh, the fine nation of Wales. Dennis, Pleasure welcome, sir. Welcome. Another question I want to talk about, again, I want to stay serious for just a second before we go over yeah. to the Looney Tunes uh, in D.C., I understand that the Five Eyes now is uh, is opening up to Japan, and I know you've spent some time over in Asia. Uh, you know they're they're getting the jitters about China. One would hope, one would like to hope anyway, that given the growth of China, all problems and all, given the growth, uh, given their seemingly expansionist sort of uh, moves over in Asia, you would want to build bridges, not get all bristly and uh, on the war footing and more ships out there and more military and all that. What, what are you hearing about this, uh, you know, the rising giant? Good God, it's been news that it's rising for 30 years or something, right? What are you hearing over there? China is an enigma, you know, wrapped in a, in a conundrum or vice versa. And it just doesn't seem to be able to bask in its own glory. They've made so many missteps along the way. And 
I was called yesterday morning to go on the evening program in China to talk about the drop in U.S. status over the course of the last three or four years. And, and I said, look, I mean, if, if I do come on, I'm going to have to talk about Xinjiang province and what's going on with the Uyghurs. You know, as you know, John Oliver on Sunday night uh, did a very explosive piece on, you know, basically stuff I've been talking about for eight years. But it's getting broader and broader focus in it because it's so abhorrent. These re-education camps, the internment of hundreds of thousands of uh, indigenous Uyghur Chinese in these camps. And, you know, the, the, it, 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 like, it has been likened to concentration camps, and indeed many have died in these camps. And when I was there visiting eight years ago, it was very clear that there were massive difficulties inside that province. We were, you know, shielded as, as members of the press, things we weren't allowed to see that we demanded to see. Um, you know, everything was uh, orchestrated by the party. Every appearance was orchestrated by the party, you know, to show how open they were to journalists when in fact they weren't. And there was a ton of unrest, particularly because Xinjiang is, is bordered by uh, 12 different nations, uh, mostly the stands. And, uh, you know, you, you don't have to go too far to talk about Pakistan and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan. And, you know, that there is a very strong Muslim influence in that part of the country. And they made things difficult for the ethnic Chinese. It, it's, it's bordered by Mongolia. So you have, Mon you have Mongols there. You have Kazakhs there. You have people from there. And the Uyghurs are the, are the indigenous people of the Gobi Desert. You know, and, and I have many photos that, that I've taken and used uh, of their traditions and, and such. And they've just not respected in any way what's going on. And I said to the, the Chinese, my, my Chinese handlers, I said, look, I'll come on and talk about the fact, justifiably so, that the U.S. has fallen in its global stature. But I'm also going to mention what's happening in Xinjiang and with the Uyghurs, and, and I said to the young guy that always asked me, I said, and you probably want to talk to your superiors because, you know, I'm many thousands of miles away, so there's nothing that you could do to me. But if I start to make that kind of commentary on your channel, because you're essentially, you know, even though you're not state-owned, everything is state-owned. <laughs> and if you have a broadcast license, even as the English language expatriate station, you know, you're not going to like what I have to say. And I warned him and I warned them ahead of time. And suddenly they decided to go in another direction. So, <laughs> you know, it's very calculating the, um, the, what I've seen about the way in which they promote what's going on in China and, and, and their view of the world. It is immersive because as journalists, we all had a handler, every single one of us when we were there in 2012. And we would literally be told precisely where to go, what to do. And we would have conversations with our handlers, you know, two or three of us as a group. And, well, what about this and what about that? And it was, it was like you were talking to a Chinese communist propaganda video instead of a human being. And, and they were so framed in their response and so framed in their in in their whole way of being 
that the state can do no wrong. It's out there to take care of us. It's there to protect us. Xi Jinping is a, you know, a great man, and, and he had just come into power back then. And so you got all these issues going, and, and we're looking at each other going, is this real? Are we really watching, you know, are they really having these conversations? Because we'd sit around at the bar long after our handlers were gone. We weren't going to go anywhere. We're sitting in downtown Arunchi, and there's nothing in Arunchi uh, other than just, you know, having a drink or two at the, at the bar. And uh, it was just one of those situations where we just found ourselves astounded by what was happening. That said, nobody does infrastructure like the Chinese. I mean, they just built a second airport that dwarfs the original Beijing airport, put that on the other side of the city. And they can do these amazing architectural structures in a matter of months, as opposed to, you know, if they were to great break ground in New York uh, to replace LaGuardia, you're talking a 20-year project before they're finally done. Their whole system is boom, 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 get it done, get it ready, and now it's open. And at the time I was there, they were building the high-speed rail line from Urumqi, the, the, the category, and at the end of the um, at the end of the line was Beijing, so it was quite literally a trans-China high-speed railway, and it's now up and operating. It has been for quite some time. They know how to do high-speed rail. They know how to do all of the infrastructure things in such a way that they make us look silly. I mean the. The Hong Kong airport that replaced Kai Tak, Kai Tak in Hong Kong, was unbelievable. They literally created an island and then put it on the island. You know, so, and, and it's astounding what they were able to do and how they are able to. And I think that only took them two years to do it. And that was literally building a brand new airport from scratch. So the Chinese know how to do infrastructure. They know how to do big projects. They just don't know how to take care of people. And that's always been the issue. We were in Xinjiang. We visited a uh, rice grain alcohol factory where they're moving peat back and forth and doing so in conditions that nobody would have survived. It was just unbelievable how poorly their workers are treated. You know, it seems to me that with a nation as powerful as China, before we get to the open hostilities stage of things, you would like to hope that diplomats and, gosh, maybe even businessmen would try to find ways. You know, the whole logic of Europe or the U.S. is to make regions interlocked and tied together so that they don't get to hostilities. Do you hear any voices saying, let's find a way of working with this this uh, adolescent country, so to speak, as it comes into its own? Uh, it's clearly doing its own outreach. It's got strong roots in Africa. And it's building up infrastructure all over the place, as you mentioned. It, it just seems to me that we're really missing an opportunity here. Well, we are. And, and saber rattling and actual sabers crossing uh, are two different things. Sure. And, you know, China's not stupid. Uh, and they they have seen the benefits of having a combination communist and capitalist society, because many people at the very top of that particular government have made a lot of money. And they've done so by, you know, basically taking advantage of, of you know, what they can. Now, the hardest thing to understand is that the average 
Chinese white collar worker makes about $400 a month in comparison. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So not wasting a lot of money on personnel. No, they're not. And the funny thing is that the cost of a, an apartment in Beijing is over a million dollars. So you're looking at, you know, people who are kept subjugated by all sorts of standards and reliant on their job, reliant on the state, reliant on. So even though there's a lot of commercial activity and a lot of money transferring and being made by people inside the country, average worker is not treated well at all. And that is you know, part of how they control it. And they need to keep making money to keep the whole hamster wheel turning. So yes, they could you know, fire missiles across the bow of a, of a U.S. warship. But to do much more than that risks losing their biggest market. Uh, and they've put up with a lot from Donald Trump, and they will for another six months because they can probably see a change. So they're not, they're not going to do anything to upset the apple cart, is what I'm saying. They're gonna, they know that they're building this Silk Roadway, you know, across Africa and across, you know, the southern part of, of India and, and all of the countries in between for trade and for transportation. And they know that the money they invest in African nations is going to come back to them in the form of goods and transit and things that are going to help in their own country. So it's, you know, it's like what we did with boats in the, and ships, excuse me, in the, in the, you know, the early days of the spice trade. Well, this is, this is, this is literally what they're doing on land now to, to support their, their activities and aspirations. Before we leave Asia, I do want to also mention, I, I saw a headline in uh, The Guardian that uh, Hong Kong hospitals are about to collapse, that the COVID problem has basically taxed the medical system beyond what is capable of dealing. Yep. The funny thing is, uh, the hard part about getting good data, you know, North Korea claimed that it just had its first case of COVID. I <laughs> find that really, really hard to believe, and that it was somebody who came in from the south, illegally crossed the border. Blah, blah, of course. Fleeing yes. to the north. Yeah, and China, where it all started with Wuhan, always underreported numbers reported them late, just like the United States is doing, just like the United Kingdom is doing. And, you know, when you hear numbers and estimates that, that the U.S. toll of both death and illness is anywhere between two and 13 times the numbers that are reported, you say, so what the hell? <laughs> I mean, that's just, you know, there's this shell game going on. Next question I want to ask you, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I'm with Mr. Dennis Campbell, author, uh, political commentator, uh, international journalist, and of course, raconteur, <laughs> author of many, many books that you should be reading. Okay. Uh, one more on the international front, uh, Dennis, before we go on to uh, talk about some of the challenges that uh, this uh, side of the Atlantic is suffering. I see from uh, the Guardian that they're reporting a, a record number of environmental activists have been killed this last year in Africa and South America, Central America. It's not been a good year for the environment, at least in terms of the activists. So, you know, Britain has always had a really pretty reasonable attitude about the 
resource development. In other words, you can't continue to plunder if you destroy the damn environment. If if nothing worse than that, are you seeing any any sensibility to this uh, maybe evolution in the way we're treating environments or or in the way that the environment's being abused? Well, what I have seen is that you know during the lockdown, you know, which is what 130 days now, you know, there was a tremendous drop in the number of vehicles on the road and the. Um, yeah, just the sheer number of, of amount of fossil fuel consumption. I mean, our we went down to basically uh, 99 pence per per liter, which is for us, you know, it's like three pound eighty, which is like uh, uh, I would say three pound eighty would be probably in the neighborhood of three dollars a gallon, which is unusual because we normally pay six to nine dollars a gallon for petrol. Wow. So without it's a supply and demand thing and without demand you know supply just sort of sat there in the forecourt of all these uh, 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 petrol stations and, and was not being consumed and people weren't driving I mean I think in from March until the end of June I may have put the equivalent of one full tank of petrol in my car you know just wow. driven off of that because there's just there was you couldn't go anywhere except to and from the grocery store. And right. that's you know, right. seven miles for me when I, when I drove. And, uh, and it, was, it, it was an astonishing thing to see the car sitting there day after day, as well as me sitting here day after day. And, uh, you know, the, that has contributed to a lowering of carbon emissions. And I think, you know, we saw stories about uh, Venice Harbor being so clear you could see fish swimming all the way to the bottom, something that never happened before. The fact that there are no large cruise ships coming into all of these major port cities, you know, basically defouling the, the whole coastline and everything else on the way. You saw, you know, just no cars, not very many airplanes. I mean, air travel here is down 96% year on year, uh, you know, British Airways literally just grounded its entire fleet of 747 aircraft and they're sitting on the ground just down the road here at Cardiff Airport and I mean I posted on Facebook and you know just kind of walked around outside looking at what had to have been 15 to 17 747s just sitting there on the tarmac with their engine covers taped over they're never going to fly again it's they've made the announcement and and I just felt nothing but, but gutted because my father was a 35-year man with that airline. And uh, I'm so glad he's not around to see this because it would have killed him. Didn't do me any good either to see the old BOAC livery, you know, on one of these 747s and the, and the one that Her Majesty used with the, with the you know, the, the colors of, uh, of the crown. And, and, you know, they had a couple of One World ones there. And you think, wow. I mean, these aircrafts, you have to have an aircraft of that size in the air 20 to 21 hours a day just to break even, okay? You know, if it's sitting on the ground, it's losing money, and you paid $400 million for each one of those. And that is a lot of money sitting there. I mean, I think of the still the ongoing crisis with the Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. It's still not airborne more than a year 
after the last crash. They can't get the fix and such in there. And there are hundreds of them. You know, Southwest has them. Others have them. And you, you just think, this is an industry that, if you think of all the hydrocarbons they contributed, has now been basically crippled. You know, you go on flight radar 24 and it's just a trickle of aircraft going anywhere in the world. And now you're in America. You can't come here. I can't go there. We've got a young Welsh basketball star who's got a four-year scholarship to uh, to Mercer University, and she had to go to Turkey to try and hitch a flight back to the United States because apparently those are the only two places that still have travel going back and forth. So uh, these no, are desperate times for a lot of people. And we're back. Uh, we will have part two of the Dennis Campbell interview next week. Um, a dryer fire update. Yes, there was a fire. No, it wasn't in the hose. Uh, it appears to be actually in the dryer. So it's a good thing we have a lot of pre-recorded stuff because I am literally putting out fires here. Um, so next up, we have Rick with Barry Raphael of Lumonics. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I am so fortunate today to have a little chat with Mr. Barry Raphael, one of the fine artists associated for decades with the artwork of Mel and Dorothy Tanner and what those of us who know them affectionately call Lumonics. Lumonics is light art. And I will take Mel's good advice and not talk too much about describing it. But I have the great good fortune to talk to Barry. And Barry's going to talk a little bit about Lumonics and a little bit, I'm sure, about the passing of, of Dorothy Tanner. Uh, Barry, welcome. Uh, you have been an artist in my heart for decades and decades. And I appreciate you and the work of Lumonics so very much. Barry, Dorothy has just left the planet. Um, tell me, I, I'm sure you've heard some wonderful outpourings from many other Lumonics enthusiasts. Um, how's it going for you? How's how's everything? And uh, just share a few of your thoughts, sir. Oh, thank you, Rick. And thank you very much for the opportunity to speak about Dorothy and Lumonics and its history. Uh, you know, with the outpouring that we've had from um, from friends, from calls and emails and, and social media, uh, it's it's really been very gratifying, and uh, it it it's made the passing a lot easier. We've actually gotten emails from people from all over the world. I'm that, sure. Uh, yeah, and it, it's just it's just really something to see the effect that. Uh, that the Tanners had on people, and you know we've Mel, Mel passed in 1993, so you know we've had Dorothy this these past uh, years uh, to kind of continue to lead the way, and um, in spite of her um, her vision problems, uh, she was able to continue to work, and uh, she had quite a uh, quite a strong spirit. So she, she really uplifted so many people. Well, I, I don't want to take another moment without telling people <clears throat> how they can see 
and experience the beauty, the wonder, the the cosmic galactic beauty of what is Lumonics. Barry, they can go on the web and see both website pictures and they can probably see video. Tell tell the listeners where they can go to hear it so that later when they come back and listen to the whole thing, they'll they'll know how to do it. How can they go and experience just a little taste of what is Lumonics? Yeah, uh, people are welcome to visit uh, lumonics.net. That's L-U-M-O-N-I-C-S.net. We also have a dorothytanner.com website um, that's devoted exclusively to Dorothy, mostly exclusively. Uh, The lumonics.net includes both uh, Dorothy and Mal and also Mark. Mark's been a great collaborator with uh, Dorothy um, over these years. And after Mel passed, you know, Dorothy extended uh, the video work, the kind of pioneering video work, abstract art that Dorothy and Mel had started in the um, late 70s and also began to uh, compose music. So there's some really nice uh, archives with uh, the video collaboration. There's also a, um, a Wikipedia page. So, you know, you could spend uh, a lot of time learning more about the tanners. The website's pretty deep, um, so there's a lot to see. Well, I know it's been up for years and years. Um, I have the great honor of being introduced to them that very first year, 1969, was when I first had the Lumonics experience. And mm-hmm. it was breathtaking and stunning and really changed my life as an artist and put me in the direction of doing multimedia, which I've uh-huh. pursued ever since. Um, I do want to talk uh, about the, the should we say, the larger the Lumonics Collective as well. I know you've been with Lumonics for <clears throat> at least, I think, since the 60s or 70s, right? Well, actually, I I came in 1972. I was introduced to the Tanners in um, the fall of 1971 uh, when a, uh, a a friend of mine who was uh, teaching uh, classes at uh, Dade Community College uh, he was introduced to Lumonics by some of his uh, colleagues at the uh, college. And he was also very taken with uh, the experience and the tanners, and he he wanted them to come to Chicago. And that's where I was living at the time. And uh, when he brought them up and I met them and I just, I was just so enthralled with them. And, uh, we were going to try to find a place in Chicago and we really, uh, we really couldn't find it quite the right spot. So they asked me if I would be interested in moving, uh, to Florida, uh, and at least in the meantime, while a friend of ours, uh, was going to still look for a spot. So I just kind of just made the leap. It was really, uh, it was really quite a thing. In the meantime, I had, before I actually moved, I went down to see the, I was uh, teaching um, in junior high school, uh, language arts. 
And I went down to see the uh, theater over Christmas vacation. And as soon as I walked into that space, it, it, oh, like, like what you and many people experience, Rick, it just, it just transformed me. I, to be around such uh, creativity and magic was just so astounding to me. And I wanted it to be the, uh, kind of the ultimate field trip for students where they could really get a blast and get their creativity uh, stimulated. And um, that was my, that was sort of what I signed up for is to kind of get the field trip program. And over the years, we did have a lot of schools and, and camps that did attend Lumonics. It wasn't quite how I anticipated it in Chicago, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been quite a journey. Wow, that's that's for sure. So you go back to the very beginning years as well. Uh, and we yes. know. And then, oh, oh, I wanted to just mention, please to answer your question. Mark and Barbara uh, showed up. I came in March of 72. And uh, Mark and Barbara came in September. And it's, I don't know if you know about this story, but. When Mel and Dorothy started working with um, plexiglass and creating the first cubes and columns uh, circa 1966, they used to get their um, their plastics from a uh, from a company in uh, Miami, and sometimes they would have material cut to size. So they got to meet this fellow named Pete Adams, and. Um, they really hit it off. And one day Pete said to Dorothy and Mel, you know, it's like, uh, I really need something to do. I, I just can't stand being home every night with my wife. <laughs> I, I need to get out once in a while. And do you mind if I come over and help you in the studio? So he was a, he was a great help. And um, he helped build a lot of the work. Uh, that eventually went into the theater. And uh, when Mark came around, Mark was really more of a rough carpenter doing, um, uh, working on houses in the Coral Gables area. And uh, he, when he met Mel, he said, you know, I'd really also like to volunteer. So kind of Pete took Mel under, uh, took Mark under his wing. And uh, very soon Pete said to Mel, you know, this, this guy's ready. <laughs> and uh, Mark just kind of took over and it, it's been an amazing collaboration. I mean, the, the, um, you know, the, the depth of the, of the work just continued to really expand. Well, you know, so much of, uh, what is Lumonics and, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, those of us who, uh, live in the world of words uh, to some extent, uh, this immersive experience that is both a projected element and a living full 3D immersive environment, uh, it, is so, it is so transcendent an experience because it, we know so many people think of art as pictorial or narrative. And to experience mm -hmm. a non-narrative art form is, is really... Uh, let's I won't say force, but I'll say encourages people to think in non-narrative forms and is, and is thus, therefore, quite liberating. 
It is. And um, I remember those those evenings at Lumonics where uh, you would come in to this, uh, this warehouse and talk about shock of the new coming in and seeing you're surrounded with these amazing light sculptures, each one more amazing than the next. And then there was the performance. So Mel and Dorothy had the uh, projection uh, booth on the mezzanine and they would uh, project slides that they made, two by two inch hand painted slides that they would blow up on a wall, you know, maybe 15 by 20 feet and create live paintings over it and then incorporating the laser. So the performance and then the vice sculptures, they had a control panel that uh, by today's standards would be um, <laughs> kind of old, old school, sure. but it actually it actually worked, and they could they could control the pieces and play with them and have it go to the music. So the experience itself was uh, with music was so overwhelming that uh, at the end of the evening, people really had a little trouble getting up. Well, I, I remember. I <laughs> I was going to say the most, one of the best compliments I ever had was somebody came in from out of town. They were living in New Mexico. And at the end of the evening, he said to me, is this legal? <laughs> sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it really started, uh, as you pointed out, uh, even before you came into the Lumonic Studio performance mm-hmm. space, you're in this nondescript warehouse section of Miami, uh, one building just the same as the other at the end of a long row of buildings, totally nondescript next to the railway. You saw a little little tiny plexiglass sign cut out that said Lumonics. It almost whispered it, you know, Uh, tremendous, tremendous kind of anti-advertising, but it was it was remarkable. And uh, yeah. you walked into, I'm, I'm just describing for people who haven't had an experience like that. You walked in to this antechamber with the light sculptures, some were dripping water, some with oil, mm-hmm. pulsing to the music. Uh, and and even, even the restroom was an experience. In <laughs> oh, with the, oh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. The Mylar bathroom. Sure, sure. You would walk <laughs> into the restroom to use the facility and because it, uh, Barry mentioned Mylar, there's mirror Mylar floor to ceiling all around you. And because it was wisely not tacked down closely, every breath, every movement made the Mylar shift and change and move. So your reflection right. was constantly shifting. It Again, just, just the bathroom was a trip all by itself. And then you walked into the main performance chamber. Uh, and, and as Barry described, Imagine, if you will, sculptures all around the room, pulsing to the music, the lower parts the, typically pulsing to the low sounds, the mids to the mid sounds, the tops to the high sounds, all around the room. And, and there were hanging sculptures as well that would be shifting. It was amazing. And then, as you said, the performance as well. Well, it, it t- changed my life as an artist entirely. And I went from uh, studying under Mel briefly 
to working with uh, several different traveling light shows and laser shows. Became a laser artist with Lumont with uh, laser images, and then uh, also a the planetarium. Yeah, yeah. I worked both at the Broward Planetarium and the Miami Space Transit Planetarium. Yeah. And then I went with Laserium. They had a Carib Laserium. We had a 60-foot screen, a 60-foot wide, 40-foot tall, and uh, that was uh, <laughs> quite an experience as well. Very, tr very transcendent. And uh, then I went on and did some, uh, I wrote some animation. And Hello, Barry, you still there? I am. Okay, okay, good. There was just a, an interference for a second. But anyway, it, it set me on my course from, from being an illustrator and sculptor to a, a performance light artist. It was uh, just absolutely life-changing. So I feel yeah. I owe a lot to my brothers and sisters at Lumonics. <laughs> Let me well. ask you this. Um, you know, Dorothy's work was, I think you could accurately characterize it as uh, rounder, curvier, more organic than Mel's, which was a little more linear, a little more uh, spherical. Um, did you did you see this evolution? And especially Dorothy's work must have changed a lot after Mel passed, where, you know, she really probably was the design principle then of the sculptures that were working. Yes, that's a very good point. So uh, when Mel was alive, uh, Mel would, at the, at the beginning, they really worked collaboratively on a lot of the pieces. And um, as time went on, because uh, there was a period of time that Dorothy didn't do much work and she was just focusing on other uh, aspects, but working collaboratively with Mel. But when she began to uh do her artwork again, it was more um, free form. Whereas Mel's pieces were, uh, as you point out, uh, a lot of his wall pieces were these uh, very precise uh, works. Dorothy, Dorothy didn't mind if a little of the, uh, of the cement showed and uh, maybe it, it, Mark would say, you know, how are we ever going to, you know, clean this, you know, and Dorothy said, don't worry about it. <laughs> she just had something in mind to do. And at the time, you know, this was pre LEDs. So sure. in, Mel's, <laughs> in Mel's lifetime, we worked with uh, fluorescent and incandescent. Uh, fortunately for Mel, the, um, when the plant light bulbs came out for indoor growing of plants, they had much more of a uh, red and pinkish quality to them. It was a different part of the spectrum. Uh -huh. And that had uh, an enormous improvement uh, in the uh, way the wall pieces looked. That was a wonderful thing. Mel would have loved the LEDs. And what happened is after Mel died, um, Dorothy continued to work, but when we discovered the LEDs, um, her, her pieces were mostly lighted with, um, with spotlights prior to that. Uh -huh. And uh, when the LEDs came out, it also made it possible for her to uh, have um, LED bases uh -huh. on the bottom of the sculpture uh -huh. so that the light would reflect up. 
And uh, that that was a wonderful effect. And then eventually, Dorothy started doing wall pieces like mm-hmm. like Mel had done, mm-hmm. but her own her own uh, in her own style. And she turned out some just some wonderful work. Just wonderful. Now I I can't encourage you listeners enough to go browse slowly through uh, what these uh, experiences were like online, uh, and. That that leads me to another thought. Uh, I'm sure that things really uh, are, are still under discussion and, and evolving by the minute. Probably, is is there a plan to continue the theater and to continue the well, school? Yes. So what we've really been um, thinking about is something that um, Dorothy said. When, you know, in 2018, uh, Dorothy had an exhibit at the McNichols Civic Center building, which is one of the oldest uh, buildings in downtown Denver. Uh, It actually was the original uh, Carnegie or Carnegie Library in Denver. And over the years, it got converted and it is now an art building. And Dorothy was given uh, over the first floor, which is what would be thought of as the community center of Denver. And she totally converted it to this installation called the Lumonics Mind Spa, stretching the body, mind, and spirit. It was a really successful installation. And besides people coming in to experience the art and to kind of do meditation, contemplation. Um, We also held a variety of events, uh, workshops, uh, musical performances, and it was just a great success. And Dorothy received the Denver Mayor's Award at the age of 95 for innovation in the arts. And the the city put together uh, an interview with Dorothy, which is available on our website. And in the interview, Dorothy said that there should be a place in Denver where people can experience this. Now we have a space in Denver, but it's a, it's a smaller space. It's just a, a fraction of all the artwork, many of the pieces which we still have in storage. So Dorothy was really talking about another location and I would really like to follow through with that. And um, Barbara and Mark are also in favor of the idea of getting another space in Denver that would house all the work and it would be uh, uh, a museum. It would be an art school where we, um, teach people how to uh, create this art. It could be a healing center, event center. That's what I think would be the most ideal project, Rick. And that would be a way of really um, getting the work out there in a more of a permanent space that could actually just continue to be after our lives are over. Sure. It's something for the people. Yeah. So I think 
that would be a that would be a project that I would really like to devote my energies to. I, I think it would be people could really benefit from it. You know, with the COVID, it, things are so up in sure. the air it's, with people yeah, going out, but. Uh-huh. It it does, but I mean that's a, eventually conditions are going to improve eventually, yep. and uh, and it would take some time to put this together as well. But that that is what our uh, what our I feel our mission should be. Well, you know, Barry, I have to tell you, you know, even above and beyond the, the incredible aesthetic power of Lumonics. I have such respect for you because you have tried and succeeded to to help inform people about something that is so beyond words. Uh, As a a wordsmith, uh, as well as artist myself, I know how hard that can be. And I think you have done just a tremendous job getting the word out about Lumonics and helping people understand because, you know, a lot of people uh, to have a non-linear, non-narrative, non-verbal experience is, is novel. <laughs> uh huh. And I yeah. think you've, you've just done a tremendous job. I, I see your oh. work on social media all the time, and you help get the word out about this incredible um, sensory experience that is Lumonics. Thank you. Oh well, thank you, Rick. That makes me feel really good. You know, it's interesting that I've been starting to. Uh, in the on our Lumonics uh, Light and Sound group page on Facebook that people are welcome to uh, visit. I've been including some of our archives and including the years that um, some of which I hadn't quite thought about myself. But, you know, Dorothy was in her early 40s when she began doing the light art. And that, you know, for a lot of people, that's very inspiring because some people would think, Jesus, you know, I'm, I'm 30. It's too late for me to do anything. Sure. And, uh, and so Dorothy, Dorothy is really a great example of uh, somebody that's just, um, you know, didn't, didn't let age stop her. Wow. I mean, she, she worked until pretty much until the time that she passed at 97. Amazing. Now, also, I, I remember Mel's sister, Jocelyn. Uh, yes. She was, was she a participating artist, or she was mostly involved with helping keep the, the organization and the, and the studio functioning? Yes, that was that second part of what you said was more of Jocelyn's role. And she was just a big, a big booster of the art. And I learned a lot from her when I came because... You know, she was the person who was lead, really uh, leading the way as far as getting the word out. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Jocelyn died in around 1986 when we moved back from um, back to Florida in, in Fort Lauderdale instead of Miami. And she kind of had a heart attack in the shower. Oh, that's and, too bad. Um, I remember her Yeah. Family. Yeah, I really, uh, I really missed our collaboration because she was. I really loved working with her, and she was always uh, so devoted to uh, Mel's work. You know, just just for historical purposes, um, Dorothy Dorothy met Mel um, 
at the Brooklyn Museum School of Art. Um, they were they were both students at the time. Mel had returned from World War II, and he was one of the first um, classes of students to be under the GI Bill. And on a uh, date, one of the students said, I'd like you to visit one of my friends. Uh, he had a basement studio, and Dorothy went to see uh, Mel's studio, and uh, Dorothy told me she was just so amazed at the uh, at the work that Mel was doing back then. I mean, it was not his paintings were not the work of a uh, of a student. They were just so his abstract paintings were just so developed, and uh, they hit it off. And a couple years later, they uh, they married and moved to Syracuse, and they started an art school there. And Dorothy, Dorothy was working with all kinds of materials. She, they had they had a house, and in the back of the house was a kind of a coach house where Dorothy had welding equipment, and she worked with uh, metal. And her favorite, one of her favorite things was uh, uh, wood carving, and she used to do. That's one of the things that she taught. So she used to do uh, carvings and teach people how to carve uh, a lot of people, a lot of heads. She has a beautiful one of uh, that she did of Mel, and also one of Jocelyn that she did in ceramic. So yep. she was quite a uh, she was quite a talent, that's for sure. Well, she's she's certainly uh, made her mark. It, it was so nice to hear the recognition of the Mayor's Award. Uh, the the, uh, the setting up of the, the space at the McNichol Center again, uh, long overdue for the recognition. But you know, given <laughs> given some of the backward-looking components of this culture, not a, not a huge surprise. But uh-huh. I, I, I think even with all that retro thinking and, and backward-looking, uh, it, it almost leaves in a space for artists who are innovative, who are artists who see a vision beyond what was and create a whole new world. And I think Lumonics has certainly, certainly accomplished that. And uh, Barry, I want you to know that all of us here at PNN wish Lumonics, every one of you, every success and the continued shining of that wonderful Lumonics light. Barry, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. And I just wanted to give a shout out to the Museum of Outdoor Arts in the Denver area, and they were just so supportive of of Dorothy and Mal's work, and they had a wonderful retrospective there, and that was really uh, they they've been really great champions and have helped us so much in getting the word out to the community. Thank you so much, Rick. I I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to call me and to arrange this. Uh, time to speak about uh, a project that is very close to my heart and yours. Well, please give every one of those wonderful Lumonics artists all my love and all, all my support, okay? I will, Rick, and we'll continue to be in touch. Okay, bye-bye.
And we're back. So we got the fire out. We got the dryer taken apart. The dogs are all out of sorts. Everything's a little wonky here. <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna in the few minutes that I have before Janine comes on, I want to share an article with you that I think is really important. This is a, a piece from Carl, I think you pronounce his name Bear, Carl Bear, B-E-I-J-E-R, and he's writing in a substack, and what he's doing is responding to uh, a piece on Yasha Munk's persuasion uh, new media venture. Uh, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about ca cancel culture here in the past, and I haven't devoted a lot of time to it because I don't think it's worth devoting a lot of time to um, however, I think that what is written here is, is very important because this, uh, this piece in persuasion is, uh, is making the rounds on social media. And it's saying that, uh, that there's a new study on self-censorship, which says, yes, um, people are censoring themselves more now than they used to. And by they used to, they mean the 50s. Uh, so this is an analysis of historical surveys on self-censorship. The surveys asked respondents whether they feel free to speak their mind, and the authors, James Gibson and Joseph Sutherland, uh, detect a slight upward trend in feeling that you're free to speak your mind. In 1954, only 13% of respondents said that they self-censor, and last year the number was 40%. Oh, it's reversed. So um, if in 1954, 13% of survey respondents said they self-censor, and this year the number is at 40%, then that uh, you would think that that would indicate a big uptick in people self-censoring themselves or canceling themselves or feeling like they're not free to, uh, to speak up. But that's only one way to look at this. <laughs> um, first of all, there's some technical issues as uh, are, are pointed out in this Substack article. There's some technical issues with the survey. Uh, there were surveys done uh, so it's a longitudinal thing. And there was one survey done in 1954, uh, then another one done in 1973, and then another one done in 1987. And then there's a whole cluster of these surveys that occur between 2005 and uh, 2020. So it's not a lot of data that they're going on for whether or not people felt free to speak their minds back in the 1950s. Not a lot of, there's no indication in, uh, from the 60s, barely have they touched the 70s and barely have they touched anything in the, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there's only three surveys that, that occurred to cover uh, 50 years. Oh my God. Um, so, so that's a problem with, with the, uh, with the self-censorship. There's also a conceptual problem here because 
uh, as um, Colbert points out, when you're looking at self-censorship and intellectual freedom, uh, you have to ask yourself a few questions. Um, is this conscious and deliberate self-censorship? Um, or is uh, never engaging in self-censorship because of cultural hostility towards taboo ideas was too intense for you to ever consider adopting other ideas? Or three, um, never engaging in self-censorship because taboo ideas have been so thoroughly exiled from an intellectual culture that you were never even aware of them. So let's unpack this a little bit. Um, the persuasion new media venture would like you to believe that cancel culture is such a big uh, deal, such a big problem, that 40% uh, of people are not speaking their minds, they're self-censoring, um, when compared to people in the mid-1950s. So you got to ask yourself, did people in the 1950s have access to the same kind of information that we do now? Uh, did people in the 1950s, uh, uh, were they uh, feeling such cultural hostility to new ideas that, that they um, didn't even consider talking about them? Yeah, so that's a form of self-censorship that is even censoring their responses to the survey. And the third one I think is the most insidious is, are you even aware that, that you're self-censoring if you're if these are ideas that would have never popped into your mind, that, that you would never have had any truck with? And I think that that is um, part of what's going on now with uh, uh, with so many people interested in democratic socialism and uh, putting some uh, guardrails up around uh, capitalist enterprise, I don't think that these are ideas that were uh, available to people in the late 20th century. And I can say for certain that when I was in college in the 1980s and early 90s, that uh, you know, it, it felt very um, subversive to take a class in Marxism. It felt very subversive to, uh, you know, study the, uh, um, the texts that people are very, that, that are very popular now. So if anyone had asked us these questions back in the 80s uh, and, you know, and someone had asked you, well, do you feel like you're, you're, you're free to talk about, you know, socialism or, 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 or Marxism or Marxist ideas? I think that my answer back then would have been <clears throat> that, and I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty straightforward person. I think that back then I would have actually been one of these number two people that there's such cultural hostility um, towards those ideas that I just didn't, I wouldn't want to have the conversation, you know, it's between me and my professor, you know, it's, uh, it's not something that I would, you know, care to bring up with a, um, a, an anonymous person taking a survey or whatever. But now, because we have so much access to all different kinds of ideas, thanks to the internet, at the social media, 
uh, we're all bumping up against all different kinds of cultures, all different kinds of, of uh, ideological um, uh, well, ideologies and different ways of thinking. And so uh, there's a lot more to take into account. And uh, with so much more information uh, out there in the ether and being relevant to conversations, I think that what's happening now is that people feel like, well, I haven't actually taken the class on Marxism, or I haven't actually read Lenin, or I haven't actually dug into what FDR was about, you know, if we're talking about political ideas. And so uh, we've raised the bar of what is considered good and established discourse. So this particular survey, you're probably going to see it on social media. Uh, look out for Carl Baer's um, piece and a substack. Even better yet, subscribe to a substack um, and uh, get his good stuff. Uh, right now, we've got Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Welcome, Janine. Thanks, Brooke. Well, tonight I'm going to talk about all things Bill Barr, well, most anyway. Uh, there's a growing call by many legal scholars and even former prosecutors that Bill Barr, having him, he's not going to resign, he has to be impeached because he has bastardized the Department of Justice in the whole process. You know, Attorney General Bill Barr, he's committed so much, it can only be called, oops, sorry, so much criminal malfeasance that it's hard to keep track of these crimes against our Constitution and, and against democracy itself. I've been saying for the past two years at least that Bill Barr has violated his oath of office, but it's only been recently the general public has witnessed, up, what I call up close and personal, the venal level of degradation that A.G. Barr has imposed on the now ironically named Department of Justice. So first we have a watchdog group that laid out the case for William, for Bill Barr's impeachment. And this was actually slightly ahead of the time he test, just testified before Congress. And so the same day that he was scheduled to testify, and he did testify um, before the House Judiciary Committee just this past week, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, otherwise known as CREW, um, last Tuesday, put out some guidelines for what would constitute a formal impeachment inquiry into Attorney General Barr's uh, possible abuses of power in his office. Now, the government watchdog group, they did this report, and they call it the Bill Barr Impeachment Report. And some of it suggests that Congress should draw from the second article of impeachment that um, basically uh, President Nixon faced in 1974, and by basically, they should focus on whether Barr's actions have constituted what they call, quote, seriously incompatible with our system of constitutional government, end quote. Now, Cruz executive director is Noah Bookbinder, and he said in a statement that the DOJ under Bill Barr has, quote, abandoned its role as guardian keeper of the law and its institutional commitment to administering the law free from favor, pressure, or, and politics. Bookbinder, Bookbinder went on and further quoted, this is first straight from the paper, that Bill Barr also accused, him of, accused Bill Barr of, quote, 
abandoning any semblance of impartiality and instead using the department to protect the president and his interests. And then Bookbinder went on and said, quote, an impeachment inquiry is the only way to put an end to the dangerous path we are on, end quote. But it is a dangerous path. Um, the attorney general is supposed to be basically impartial, and yet Bill Barr's after has been consistently acting as Donald Trump's consigliere, you know, taking over where Roy Cohn left off, in my opinion. So Cruz's organization is saying that the inquiry should focus at minimum on four areas. Area number one is they accuse Barr of, quote, corruptly subverting the special counsel investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election and of President Trump for obstruction of justice. Area two, they're saying that Bill Barr, inter, quote, interfered with the lawful functions of the Department of Justice by overturning the actions of career prosecutors in the cases of Roger Stone Jr. and Michael Flynn and by firing United States Attorney General Jeffrey Berman. Area number three, they accused Bill Barr of, quote, that he obstructed lawful investigations of the United States House of Representatives. And area four accuses Bill Barr of saying that Barr, quote, abused and exceeded the powers of the Attorney General to violate the First and Fourth Amendments of Amendment Rights of American Citizens. This is what I call the Ferguson effect. Now it's the Portland effect. And as I've stated multiple times before, to a lot of upper middle class protesters, especially if they're white, this is outrageous. Unfortunately, to migrants, to communities of color, especially the Hispanic, Latina, and especially the black community, it's just another Friday. So the Ferguson effect. The final point really focuses on the treatment of peaceable racial justice protesters. Now, you have to understand something. There's many people say, oh, my God, you know, they tried to light the, you know, the, the, the justice building on fire. Since when in this country is it legitimate to prosecute everyone for the actions of one or alleged actions of one or two, and since when do you just pull people off the streets, legitimately that is, because they might commit a crime? So Crew goes on to say, quote, on multiple occasions, Barr appears to have given unlawful orders to federal law enforcement to use violent riot control tactics to violate or impair protesters' constitutionally protected rights. That's according to the report. And they pointed to um, Barr's directive to the police, um, and this was when he, it's been confirmed that Bill Barr did give the directive to the police to forcefully clear demonstrators from Lafayette Square so Donald Trump could stand in front of the church with a Bible. The report also uh, frames the idea of an impeachment inquiry as, quote, not just a matter of putting an end to his egregious abuses of power, but of preventing the precedent Barr has set from becoming a model for future attorney generals to emulate. It is about restoring the administration of justice free from favor, pressure, and politics. And the report, end quote. And the report also says, quote, in order to fully restore the, Depart the Justice Department's impartiality and independence, Congress must confront Barr's abuses of power, end quote. And that was, that was a quote from Bookbinder himself. Bookbinder also went on to say, quote, Barr has proven himself unfit to fulfill the duties he swore to uphold, and only by considering his impeachment can Congress begin to undo the damage he has done to our democratic system, end quote. So, you know, this is pretty straightforward, okay? And Bill Barr's just basically shrugging it off like it's just a 
dumb joke to him because Bill Barr has, in my opinion, no respect for the idea of democracy itself. You know, if this were basically the 1700s instead of the instead of the 21st century, he'd be a monarchist, I'm sure. So, you know, Barr testified in front of Congress, um, and you know, the, the testimony was delayed a little bit, but according you know, CNN, according to prepared remarks, Barr was going to tell the panel that President Donald Trump, quote, has not attempted to interfere, end quote, in his decisions, and that, quote, police departments are not plagued with deep-seated racism, end quote. Okay, you, you just, the disbelief on that one right now. You know, Barr basically had prepared remarks for, you know, if this was entered into the record, he perjured himself. Because the idea that Donald Trump has not attempted to interfere when Barr's been involved in every single decision, all they do is point out the discrepancy in testimony right there, and the idea the police departments are not plagued with deep city racism. He, he perjured himself, in my opinion, and, and nothing has happened yet. Now, crew again, they released this impeachment report, and, you know, they're looking at the factual and legal basis, all right? Um, and this is really about whether Barr used his power, again, unlawfully to protect Trump from investigations into wrongdoing or his allies and to suppress the rights of protesters. And, again, crew executive director Noah Bookbinder was quoted saying, quote, under Barr's leadership, the Department of Justice has abandoned its role as the guardian and keeper of the law and its institutional commitment to administering the law Free from favor, pressure policy. Okay, I read that already. Here's the thing. Since A.G. Barr's been sworn in, he has made multiple decisions that run directly counter to established Department of Justice precedent. And we live in a legal system of precedent. He's also threatened the department's ability to try and be any, any bit of a fair and impartial arbiter of justice. It's not happening. In fact, Barr was deliberate in his actions where he misconstrued information, he so attempted to sow discord among the people, and set out a course to punish anyone that was considered an enemy of Trump. So he's acted as Trump's DOJ version of Roy Cohn. That is totally inappropriate. That's grounds for impeachment right there. So... You know, again, if you look a little more into it, Barr took an active role in, according to Crew, in subverting the special counsel investigation. Okay? He, even though he was a critic of the special counsel investigation, he failed to recuse himself from that investigation. And he should have recused himself, just like Jeff Sessions did. And then Barr later, according to the report, misrepresented the special counsel's findings because he issued his own very inaccurate summary of the special counsel's report. So, you know, then he actually set John uh, Dunham, the United States Attorney for Connecticut, with the task of examining the origins of, of the FBI's Trump-Russia investigation, and that was with the intent of undermining the special counsel's report. He may, the report also goes about how he may have interfered with the lawful functions of DOJ, uh, basically, you know, he reversed the decisions of career prosecutors, especially in the cases of Roger, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. And then he fired U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman. He dismissed 
just threw out some sentencing recommendations from career prosecutors and instead replaced the government's recommended sentence for Roger Stone. He moved to dismiss charges against Michael Flynn, and then he announced that Berman resigned, except Berman hadn't resigned, and Berman even issued a statement saying he's not leaving, and then the next day, Trump fired Berman. But Berman's ouster, his firing, came after his office had completed conducted this high-profile criminal investigation of multiple individuals that have been associated with Trump. So once again, you know, this doesn't pass the smell test. This, you know, it this smells like corruption. And then Barr is accused of abusing and exceeding his powers. You know, he violated the First and Fourth Amendments of American citizens. He ordered federal law enforcement to forcibly remove protesters um, following the murder of George Floyd. Um, and it's, the report says officials in the White House and DOJ confirmed that Barr was the one who ordered the park, the park cleared, even though Barr's denied it. So we've got that going on. Our continued obstruction of lawful investigations. Excuse me. And Bookbinder himself added, quote, in order to fully restore the Justice Department's impartiality and independence, Congress must confront Barr's abuses of power. You know, he's, just, he's unfit to fulfill these duties. Um, and then I found something that was really kind of even more scary. Uh, in May, Crew, according, Crew submitted a petition according to a press release, and this petition had over 100,000 names, and it was basically calling on the DOJ to force Barr to resign and because of his clearly political behavior when you're not supposed to do that. And then Crew also fired, I'm sorry, filed multiple FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act, uh, and they needed these for related lawsuits. Um, so they could look at Barr's conduct in detail. But in quite a few of those cases, DOJ withheld relevant records. And I guess the question in my mind is, what right does DOJ have to withhold records that are properly requested through the Freedom of Information Act? Now we have Daniel Cotter, who is an attorney, and he wrote in the Hartford Law and Policy Review, quote, the attorney general should be separate. And he goes into the history of the office of the attorney general. It was established in 1789 through the, excuse me, through the Judiciary Act of 1789. And this act, you know, it set up the Supreme Court and the, the idea that the court had exclusive jurisdiction and also set up the lower court structure. And one of the powers the act gave the Supreme Court with the mandamus, you know, was what they based Marbury versus Madison on. But the Judiciary Act of 1789 also established the Office of the Attorney General. Now, we have to look at this issue of independence again. Now, this, this writer, he looked at the state's models. Like, for instance, in my home state of Missouri, the Attorney General is, is elected. And, but in practically every state in the Union, the Attorney General enjoys a certain amount of independence and is not dependent on the governor to retain their employment. And so they're not beholden to the executive. Now, the Judiciary Act, this writer, Cotter, wrote that it established the Office of the Attorney General, and Section 35 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 provides, quote, and there shall also be appointed a meet person learned in the law to act as Attorney General for the United States, who shall be sworn or affirmed to a faithful execution of his office, whose duty it shall be to prosecute and conduct all suits in the Supreme Court, in which the United States shall be concerned and to give its advice and opinion upon questions of law 
when required by the President of the United States or when request, requested by the heads of any department. Okay, that makes sense. But the language in Section 35 really didn't define the idea that the President had the right to appoint the Attorney General. In fact, it was notably silent. There is no uh, there is no actual power granted to the president that the president can appoint an attorney general or fire an attorney general. It's just not there. And history writer David Tolan wrote on his site, Pinesy's History, quote, the framers of the Constitution did not consciously grant the president authority to hire and fire the attorney general. The first draft of the Judiciary Act of 1789, written by several of the framers, said the Supreme Court would appoint the AG. The Act's final draft, on the other hand, said nothing about who would hire or fire these lawyers. The early presidents just stepped into the void and made government attorneys part of their administration. Right now, if you really were to trace the legality, no president actually has a defined right to appoint or fire an attorney general. And it really shouldn't be, according to this guy, part of the executive branch at all. And I agree. And so Tallinn, this historian, he looks at states' potential models, and he says 48 of our state governors can't fire their AG at will, and because of that, these governors can't avoid justice, quote, through control of state prosecutors, end quote. 43 states elect theirs. And so, you know, we have this situation where Barr has decided that he is going to be Trump's you know, new Roy Cohn, maybe with better manners, 2.0. But this is something that we have to look at. So uh, another person, Betsy Woodruff in Swan, uh, I'm sorry, Betsy Woodruff Swan wrote in Politico, uh, and this was about the idea of detaining people, quote, the Justice Department has quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief justices to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. I'm going to read that again. Okay, this is really scary. So I'm going to back up a little bit real fast. On March 23rd, 2020, at Trump's daily press conference, um, Barr joined Trump. And Barr remarked that, quote, we, this is Barr, quote, we have started to see some evidence of potential hurting and price gouging until earlier today, the president signed a second executive order providing the authority to address the necessary hoarding that threatens supply of those necessary health and medical resources. It is a crime to engage in prohibited activity. And that's true. But according to Betsy Woodruff Swan and Politico, what we didn't find out until now was that the just quote, Justice Department has quietly asked Congress for the ability to ask chief, chief justices to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. So my question is, what would be the required criterion to define such emergencies? What constitutional rights does DOJ have to, have to possess this blank check? Protecting us from alleged unknown terrorists is a specious and inaccurate claim. So... Hmm. Others have expressed concerns because Barr poses a real danger to democracy itself. Um, so Jack Goldsmith um, wrote, quote, that and he is a Henry L. Shattuck professor at Harvard Law School. He's co-founder of Lawfare and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, quote, some president, he wrote this in 2018. 
quote, some presidents manage this independence, you know, the idea of independence and accountability with the AG better than others. Donald Trump is not skillful at persuading, bargaining with, or leading his administration. He acts like he doesn't care about the law and has no respect for DOJ, FBI, and their pursuits. When Trump acts this way, he makes it harder for the DOJ and FBI to engage in appropriate accommodations to him at the margins, end quote. So not only this bar has also suffered a recent call, uh, and this was several months ago, um, DO, 2000 DO, former DOJ alumni signed a petition demanding that he resign. Okay, and this was right after the Roger Stone incident. Uh, and they wrote, quote, each of us strongly condemns Attorney General's interference in the fair administration of justice. The Justice Manual states that the rule of law depends on the even-handed administration of justice, that the legal decisions must be impartial and insulated from political influence, and that the prosecutorial powers must be exercised free from partisan consideration. And yet President Trump and Attorney General Barr have openly and repeatedly flouted this fundamental principle. It is unheard of for the department's top leaders to overrule lying prosecutors in order to give preferential treatment to the close associate of the president as Attorney General Barr did in the Stone case. It is even more outrageous for the Attorney General to intervene as he did here after the president publicly condemned the sentencing recommendation. Such behavior is a grave threat to the fair administration of justice, governments that use their, the enormous power of law enforcement to punish their enemies and reward their allies are not constitutional republics, they are autocracies. And Mr. Barr's actions in doing the president's bidding unfortunately speak louder than his words. Those actions and the damage they have done to the DOJ's reputation for integrity and the rule of law require Mr. Barr to resign. Okay, I think that pretty much says it right there. That is strong and it is right on target. Now, one proposal in conclusion, since the to this problem with a political attorney general that's basically acting as the president's private attorney, we know that the final Judiciary Act of 1789 did not give any role to any department, and it certainly didn't give any president the right to pick his attorney general or to fire them. And basically what they're saying here is that the framers really considered the, the AG kind of a quasi-judicial post that should definitely be independent from the president. Um, and what what's been suggested is that a future Congress has to tackle this and make sure that the AG's office is totally separate and not under any any additional presidents. Now, Victoria Bassetti and Norman Eisen wrote in Politico, quote, um, just the other day, Barr makes it official, he's Trump's new fixer. Okay. Victoria Bassetti is a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Eisen served as impeachment counsel to the House Judiciary Committee, and he's an author of a book called The Case for the American People, the United States versus Donald J. Trump. And basically, they are saying the same thing, that Barr is basically acting as consigliere to Donald Trump. And you know, Barr was asked in his testimony before Congress the, ver the, the following questions, quote, he was asked, is election day set by law? Now, Barr is the attorney general. He is a graduate of an Ivy League law school, and his response was, quote, I've never looked into it. Not kidding. Then Barr was asked, is it appropriate for the president to solicit or accept foreign assistance in an election? 
pretty simple question. Bar answered, quote, it depends what kind of assistance. Okay, this is inexcusable for any AG to basically, he's, he's refusing to ask, refusing to answer Nasser's questions and the questions of the committee. And as far as I'm concerned at that point, because he had so much inside knowledge, Barr was guilty of contempt. And whether he's the AG or not, if it had been me, I would have said, Mr. Barr, we have a nice little jail cell in the basement of the building that hasn't been used in a long time. You're about to spend some time there if you don't actually answer questions. So, but the thing is that you can't totally blame this on Barr. Barr found and exploited structural and internal cultural weaknesses in the department. So we do have to have stronger safeguards. And one of the safeguards is uh, you have to reform the Office of Legal Counsel. Keeps coming back to this. Um, and the OLC has basically written what has provided legal rationales um, for too many crimes, including the torture memo. Um, and that's John Yu. But in, during Trump, OLC provided legal rationales for refusing to provide a House committee Trump's tax returns, even though there is a statute clearly saying he must turn them over. <clears throat> they, OLC's backed, as we know, extreme interpretations of ex executive privilege and absolute immunity for the president's closest advisors. And all I can say is hello, John Yu and Jay, Jay Bybee. OLC has the aura of legitimacy, though the aura was really the stench of brutal injustice rationalized in ludicrous technical details that don't bear on the spirit of the law. Do any of us truly need an explanation on the Eighth Amendment? No cruel or unusual punishment means no torture, period. And no amount of analyzing dirty toe jam will change this. But once again, this nonsense keeps going around. And, you know, today OLC really decides not only what their opinions are going to be, but when to release them. And they often withhold those opinions, including opinions that are critical to understand exactly what the government is demanding. So my question is, by what right does any government agency or court have to withhold the full text of legal decisions or interpretations? Exactly where in the Constitution is there a clause that allows for such a secretive body of law? There isn't any. So we need to demand that we need also more inspectors general, because inspectors general, they are independent, and but we need also more public transparency and accountability. No more secret law. It's got to stop. Now, when we look at what's happening, you know, so we've watched and discussed how DHS has abused protesters and non-protesters in Portland. Many have said that the actions taken by DH, DOJ are illegal, and, and DHS was not. Well, they are definitely unconstitutional and vile. Technically, they are legal. How did this happen? A series of presidents taking powers they did not deserve and multiple Congresses that have abandoned their constitutional duty to protect and defend the Constitution sets the stage for what we are seeing in Portland that is about to be exported to any town in the USA. We started with patriots, but as I stated last week, both Dems and Republicans are equally culpable in failing their duty. George W. Bush initiated some of the most evil laws, beginning with Patriots, which culminated in then-OLC attorney John Yu and his boss, Jay Bybee, authoring the infamous torture memos in direct violation of the Eighth Amendment and more. In 2011, the Obama administration took it further with the NDAA, which theoretically set a technically legal foundation 
for the DHS kidnappings and false imprisonment we are seeing in Portland. And the fact is, we discussed this last week. I'm going to probably in another week go over this in more detail. But Sections 1031, 1032, and 1033.35, it's mundane, legally styled, but it's a renewal of the original 2001 AUMF, which is the Authorization for Use of Military Force. And it allows military force, quote, and military detention against previously identified perpetrators of the 9-11 tax, the countries allegedly harboring them, and anyone who substantially supports, in other words, you know, whether it's al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces. The magic words which define this Aurelian double-speak legalese are the phrase that substantially supports and associated phrase uh, associated forces. We're going to go into it more in you know at another time. But the fact is, even though you know President Obama went and said, "Look, he's not going to put at that time because it was during his administration. He's not going to put anybody, any American citizens in military detention." The way that law was written, that he signed off on, it does not expressly forbid placement of American citizens in military detention. So, you know, once again, we're looking at something that never should have happened. And now, and we have to hold a series of presidents, both Democrat and Republican, as well as a series of Congresses accountable, because they didn't do their job, not for the people. The abuses dished out by DHS agencies, such as Border Patrol, ICE and so on, but technically legal, unfortunately, due to signing off on multiple injustices by alleged lawmakers. Those who gave consent to these acts, which are a mockery of true justice, did so to curry favor with their corporate masters, and they are the true criminals. Keep in mind that slavery used to be legal in the U.S., but was always immoral. Better yet, remember what the late Dr. King once said about Hitler and his genocide of 11 million. Quote, never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. End quote. And that's my report. Wow. Thank you so much, Janine. That was, uh, uh, it's just stunning. The Bill Barr stuff is just stunning. Uh, well, um, we have just 60 seconds left. Um, yeah. So are, are you doing Bill Barr again next week? Did I hear you say you were going to go deeper into this? Probably. It depends on how what okay. I find. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Um, all right, folks. Well, that's it for tonight for the uh, 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 very uh, stitched together show with a fire going on in my kitchen and a hurricane and fevers and all kinds of things. Uh, just amazing that uh, we pulled this together and we're able to do it. So thank you so much for joining us. Janine, thank you for your report. And we will see you guys again next week. Bye-bye.